great to be here with all of you. I've been thoroughly blessed already. I've been blessed, uh, first and foremost, with the reverence that you approach worship, uh, with the corporate singing that I heard this morning, with the wonderful songs, with the prayers. Marilyn, the scripture reading was great wherever uh, you are. Uh, having only just met Michael and only recently having met Nathan, I, I want to thank you, church, for for calling these men as your pastors, because you are indeed uh, blessed. Uh, these are these are great men of God, uh, and and I I have enjoyed talking with them thus far, and I enjoy getting to know them in the future. Ephesians chapter three. It it may bring to mind a few things that we need to do as a church, beloved. Many of you have maybe thought over the past couple of years that we need prayer more now than ever. I would submit to you that we feel this way because we needed prayer more in the past than we ever considered. Our society and our culture has lost little that the church did not lose first. And now we must endeavor to pray for this in the church, pray for spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity. And Paul talks about spiritual maturity here in this text that Marilyn read for us this morning in Ephesians chapter 3. But this isn't the only place that the scripture talks about spiritual maturity and endeavors for us to gain it. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 14, Paul also writes... He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine that, uh, by human coming cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Colossians also, in Colossians 1.28, in him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Hebrews 5, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to discern good from evil. Hebrews 6, uh, 6, 1, therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God. You see, there are continual calls for spiritual maturity in the Scriptures. You may be talented in a lot of areas, uh, perhaps well-learned in your profession. Maybe you have a hobby that you're really good at. Uh, maybe you're well-versed in a particular skill. Perhaps you lament that you're not skilled enough at some things. And that's okay. Whatever the case... Aim to be good at this. Aim to be spiritually mature. Aim to be spiritually mature. This is exactly what Paul is asking of God for us on our behalf. This is the goal. 
It's the answer to the foremost, God, what would you have me do question. Aim to be spiritually mature. Notice in verse 14, he says, for this reason. So we started off a passage that says, for this reason. We've obviously not gone through that. So let me just briefly summarize what he means by for this reason. Uh, Previously, he was talking to the Gentiles and he said, you have become a dwelling place with the Jews in the church. You're with Jewish believers. You guys together have become a dwelling place. And this new uh, group, this new community of believers must be built together to grow. So Christ is the cornerstone, the apostles teaching the foundation, and then Jews and Gentiles together make uh, this community, form this building, this temple of God, this household of God in which God will dwell by his Holy Spirit. So for this reason, because we are all together from different backgrounds, but united by confession of faith, for this reason, aim for spiritual maturity. He's given them a charge as a church in order to grow with all believers in the gospel. This is God's purpose for the church, and it's God's purpose for each of you. By God's power through the Holy Spirit, we are to pursue pursue spiritual maturity. So by God's power through the Holy Spirit, we are to pursue spiritual maturity. So we're going to take this in two parts this morning. First, spiritual maturity. What is it, and how do we get it? What is it, and how do we get it? By God's power, which is passive, he gives this to us. By God's power, we are to actively seek spiritual maturity. We do that part. So if you miss everything else, that's it. That's the sermon. By God's power, he gives us what we need to then actively pursue spiritual maturity. But it is a doing on our part. So what is spiritual maturity? Maturity. There's three parts to what Paul is saying here about spiritual maturity. First, spiritual maturity is experiencing Christ. It's experiencing Christ that according in verse 16, to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Our inner being is who we are. It's the very seat of ourselves. It's where our thoughts come from. It's where the inner dialogue happens. Our conscience is there. Our emotions come from there. It aims to be at the very heart of who we are. So Paul's saying, at the very heart of who you are, be spiritually mature. I think that the book Huckleberry Finn illustrates this well. Uh, Huck is, if you haven't read the book, Huckleberry Finn is, is struggling. Um, with, with society and internal feeling. And, and he really wants to help his runaway slave friend, Jim, escape and then be reunited with his family. That's his feeling. He wants to do that. He feels that is right. But society tells him that is sin. And, and to be a sinner is to go to hell. And he wants to change. He doesn't want to be a sinner, but he wants to help his friend. So there's internal conflict going on in Huckleberry Finn. And so he decides, I'm not going to be a sinner anymore. I'm going to pray to God. And it says this. It made me shiver. This is Huck talking. And I about made up my mind to pray and see if I couldn't try to quit being the kind of a boy I was and be better. So I kneeled down. But the words wouldn't come. Why wouldn't they? It weren't no use to try to hide it from him. 
nor from me neither. I know very well why they wouldn't come. It, would, it was because in my heart it wasn't right. It was because I weren't square. It was because I was playing double. I was letting on to give up sin, but away inside of me, I was holding on to the biggest one of all. I was trying to make my mouth say I would do the right thing and the clean thing and go and write to that fellow's owner and tell where he was. But deep down in me, I knowed it was a lie and he knowed it. You can't pray a lie. I found that out. In that very place where Huck couldn't lie. That's the seat of who we are. You cannot lie in prayer from the seat of you. You cannot say something that you just cannot say. From that very seat, from that place, in that place, Paul is saying, I want you to be spiritually mature. God, Paul is asking God the Father to allow us to experience Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. Another way to say this is that Christ Jesus would dwell in our hearts through faith. In the deepest place of who we are, experience Christ. In the deepest place of who you are, experience Christ. You see, there's this knowing and then there's this experience. You might know that New York pizza is the best pizza, but until you taste it, right? Or that New Orleans beignets are the very best beignets, but until you go there and eat one there. Or that Britain's fish and chips are really as good as they say, but until you go there. Or that Texas Tex-Mex is really the best Tex-Mex by definition, right? But until you taste it. Or knowing that you need practice, but until you get killed by that other team. Or that you have to prep for that exam or that business meeting until you get stumped. Knowing that your family and your church community loves you, but until there's that problem where they rally around beside you, you don't experience what you know to be true. You might know chocolate is sweet, but if you've never tasted it, how would you know? It's true that Christ indwells the believer at conversion. There's a space within us that this is true. It's, it's the place that needs regenerating for salvation and the Holy Spirit is imparted to us. But the Bible also teaches there's a very real sense in which we can know Christ but not experience Christ. For instance, it says we must call upon the Holy Spirit to empower us during temptation in Romans 7 or for daily renewal in 1 Corinthians 4. One pastor says it this way, it is a difference of Christ finding the dwelling of your inner being welcoming or not. Is it prepared for Christ or is it averse to him? In other words, imagine you have confessed Christ as truly God. And you have a living room inside of you and you've arranged the furniture as you like. When you invite Christ in, do you say, arrange it how it suits you? Or do you say, don't touch anything it suits me just fine. Maturity is increasingly letting God rearrange that furniture within you. But it doesn't come passively. So first, it's experiencing Christ, a spiritual maturity. Second, spiritual maturity is also knowing the love of Christ that we might actively comprehend. In verse 17, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness 
of God. Experiencing Christ provides the fertile soil in which to build our foundation, in which to grow. So there's this passive being rooted and grounded in love that, that God forms this fertile soil. And now there's this active element of comprehending. This word Paul uses for comprehending uh, in other verses, scholars debate on whether it means um, to process information, to grasp it, to understand it, to, or to overcome it. It's, it's mastery of this knowledge of Christ's love. But it's important to know that experience alone is not worship. It's also comprehending Christ. So I can come in here on a Sunday morning and experience this reverence and this love of Christ. And it fills me with joy. And I love it. But it's also actively comprehending who this Christ is that I've met. Jesus says so himself in John 4, but the hour is coming when he's talking to the Samaritan woman. And is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So this starts with the power of the Holy Spirit to experience God and to begin to comprehend him. And then there's this active learning component to the Christian life to begin to seek comprehension of who this God is, who Christ is, and what his love is. Well, how do we know this love of Christ? Well, the first thing, the first step is to know the despair that we are in without him. Romans says that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if, if we confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. For the very heart of the gospel is knowing that we need this Christ. And that's where all of this begins. Page 12 of the bulletin. Paul then gives these measurements. The breadth, the length, the height, the depth of Christ's love. Chrysostom in the early church says this is primarily a reference to the vastness of divine love, plus the background of God's administrative plan, the mystery and complex wisdom of God. John Stott much later helpfully says the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind, especially the Jews and Gentiles. Long enough to last for eternity, deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner, and high enough to exalt him to heaven. How important is knowing the love of Christ? It's rooted and grounded. It literally forms the foundation of all else we understand about God. Being rooted and grounded in love somehow supplies the strength to grasp Christ's love, the immensity of it, his love for us. And it provides us the power to love others. It's, the, it's literally the foundation of each of our spiritual journeys in Christ. So it's a, spiritual maturity is experiencing Christ. It's knowing the love of Christ, but it's also being filled with God's fullness. In verse 19, he says, And to know the love of Christ 
that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Filled with all the fullness of God. Now, this is not an emotional term. If you've ever been on a camp retreat as a youth, and you come back and you're filled with that post-camp spiritual high, if you've ever endured worship service that you just felt like God was right there, or you've been to a funeral and you walk out of the funeral and you say, this is life, it's black and white. I know what I need to focus on. But in all those circumstances, over time, the cares of this world and just the day-to-day task work and, and chip away at that feeling of the fullness of God, that feeling of, of uh, knowing what we have to do in life. It's not that. It's not that emotional part of it. It's, it's this deep sense of knowledge and experience of Christ and Christ's love that leads to decisions, wisdom, action in our lives. It is a condition that leads to a result. So the fullness of God, as one commentator says, Christ takes up residence as the center of our personality so that through a relationship of faith, Christ's character and the pattern of his death and resurrection increasingly shape our values and our living. The foundation of who we are begins to work itself out in all of our decisions, in all of our actions. It shapes how we think of ourselves. When we're filled with the fullness of God, we stop worrying about little things. We stop worrying about comparing ourselves to others, about how we look or how we uh, talk or how we act, about unnecessary worry, about refusing to be wrong or if we're loved or valued, making the exact perfect decision on career or college or whatever else circumstance you find yourself in. If our church is getting the small stuff correct or not, right? Those are the types of things that go away when the fullness of God is the center of who we are. We know, we understand, we feel, we work out of this fullness of God. Instead, it is a confidence that we are loved and not alone, that we are equipped to discern God's will in our circumstances. That is spiritual maturity. Now, how do we get it? How do we get it? How do we grow spiritually mature? So there's two aspects of this in this passage. There's a passive aspect and the active aspect. Most of it is passive. Most of it is God doing for us. But there is an active element. So God is the one acting here. So we receive what God supplies in Christ through the Holy Spirit. Um, This means we're open to being changed by God. We're allowing him to guide us. We're being humble. We're being teachable. And and Paul's praying for this. So let's, let's not just move on before we talk about this aspect by example of spiritual maturity. It's prayer. Prayer itself. If you don't pray now, there are a couple of easy things you can do to start that journey of prayer. I've done these uh, two separate methods in my life, and I, and I waver between both of them. One is the IOUs. Uh, you may have heard it before. Uh, it's, it's just these, the simple sayings that, that orient 
me towards God in the morning. Incline my heart to your testimony. Open my eyes that I may behold the wonders of your law. Unite my heart that I might fear your name and satisfy me in your steadfast love to launch me into prayer. A tried and true method, Matthew chapter 6, recite the Lord's Prayer. Recite it once, twice, three times a day. Let that launch you into prayer. But there's also another example of prayer that Paul gives us, praying for maturity in ourselves and others. So the best example we can take away, if we're using Paul as an example here, is that when we pray for others, we first and foremost pray for their spiritual maturity. That's the first thing we pray. The second thing is their circumstances. If you don't know what to pray for your kids, pray Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. For your family members who don't know Christ or do know Christ, Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. If you don't know what to pray, this is a suitable prayer. But there's also active elements in this, not only receiving what God gives, but Paul does two active things here. One, by example, bowing the knee. I bow my knee before the Father. I kneel before the Father. So bowing in prayer was then like it is now. It's not abnormal to see someone bow in prayer, but it is infrequent. So it does symbolize something. Even for Paul, it is a recognition of the sovereignty of God, of the reverence that God is, of a humility towards God, and obedience to hear what God has. All of this with having the desire to know. It's not all knowledge. It's not all experience, but it is both. Verse 18, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know. One of the first books I read this year was called Deep Discipleship by J.T. English. If you haven't read it, it's a pretty good book. In it, he says the Father initiates salvation, the Son accomplishes salvation, the Spirit applies salvation so we may walk in obedience. And this is the paradox. The Christian life is entirely of grace, but we are called to grow in that grace. There is a doing element. Paul himself says this in Acts, in Acts chapter 16, when asked how one is saved. Then he brought them out and says, sir, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Grace is not opposed to growth. Those who receive the grace of Christ want to grow in the grace of Christ. And I think Dallas Willard says it very, very effectively. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Doing starts with calling, but there is still a doing to the Christian life. We're called to seek and to know Christ. In 1 Timothy 3, it says that God's word is useful for these things, for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and training in righteousness. But in our doing, Paul sends a reality check here. We cannot comprehend everything. 
We also have to seek maturity in humility. In humility of understanding our limitations. Look down at verse 19 again. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Very interesting, huh? We're to know what surpasses knowledge. There's definitely a content that Paul wants us to know here. But the God we worship is not confined to our ability to understand him. One commentator says divine enabling is essential to understanding. And that's true. The Holy Spirit must guide us. But we don't have to understand everything in the Bible for it to be true. To insist that we must understand everything we read in the Bible is to elevate ourselves to a position of God. A God that you completely understand is not a God. It's yourself. A God that we must completely understand in order to worship is either one, making an idol out of understanding, or two, elevating ourselves to the position of God. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever so that we may obey all the commands of this law. If I insist on knowing all the secret things and understanding God fully before I submit to him and making God think like I think, I am making myself God. Knowing God starts with bowing the knee to him in humble response and reception of his word to us. Lastly, Paul says, with all the saints. He says, with all the saints. This is a church community, the Gentiles and Jewish community all together. You see, church, we're not unified by the community outside the church. We're not unified by science. We're not unified by political party, by nationality, by ethnicity, by where we live. All of that remains outside. When we come in here, we're unified by confession to Christ as Lord. With all the saints, we grow together. This is explicit in Hebrews chapter 13. Don't neglect the gathering of the believers. We grow together with one another. And Paul gives us encouragement. Above all, he reminds us to seek God and not doubt his power seated in his love for us through Christ. Don't doubt because this power comes from the abundance of his glory, he says in verse 16. And his love surpasses knowledge, and he can do far more than our minds can conceive. Look at verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Now this is a doxology. It's a praise to God. But Paul does in other places and could have here said different words to give praise to God. One commentator helpfully draws out the magnificence of the wording used here. There's a lot of things Paul could have said. 
Could he have said instead of, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think? Instead of that, could he have said he is able to do what believers ask in prayer? God who is able to do what we ask in prayer. That's true. Could he have said he is able to do what they fail to ask, but they can think? I forgot to ask it, but I can think it. He could do that. Yes, that's true. He, can, he is able to do all we ask or think. Absolutely. Can he do above all? God is above all. Can he do abundantly above all? If he's God, yes. Can he do more abundantly above all? Yes. So you put these together, and what Paul is saying here is he can do infinitely, infinitely, more abundantly, above all, all we can even ask or think. So as much as you can stretch your mind, as much as you can imagine, beyond that, beyond anything you can conceive in your mind, is what Paul is able to do. Our imagination, our minds are are exceeded. We cannot stretch our minds beyond the power and ability of God and his love and as far as he can reach. And this all starts with knowing the love of Christ. Church, set your business about seeking the maturity of believers. This is our role in the world. There there is far more difference than we can make as a church, as a local church in this community, as the church globally. There's far more difference we can make by producing spiritually mature believers than we can in any other realm, in any other avenue, with any other tool, and with any other power. It starts here. And that starts with making our foundation and soil Christ alone. Let us pray. God, we are not worthy that you have called us, you have reached into the mire. You've grabbed hold of our hearts. You've inclined them towards you. That we may see this love of Christ, that we may know your power, that we may not doubt your love for us, that we may uniquely, among all peoples of this world, being indwelt by your Spirit, never, ever, ever be alone again. If all people are missing, you are there by your Spirit. And by the same Spirit, Lord, we ask that you would give us the power to seek you in all that we do, to seat you in the very center of who we are, to make our foundation Christ and his love for us, that all that we do as we walk in this world comes from the love of Christ, that we may love you and love others. And it is in your name that we pray to you this morning. Amen.